And our moderator this evening is Tom Hanchett. And for many of you, I don't imagine that Tom needs an introduction. Uh, but nonetheless, he is the staff historian here at the Levine Museum of the New South. That doesn't even begin to describe all of the things that, that you probably do here at the museum, let alone in the community. He's written widely on urban history and southern culture. Tom's Food from Home columns, published in the Charlotte Observer and posted online, explore the city's rich array of regional and international food and culture. So a big thank you and welcome, please, to Tom Hanchett, our moderator. And, and a round of applause for the guy that put this together, Mark Rumsey. If, if you can't quite place where you hear that voice, it's on WFAE, 90.7, your NPR news source, on all things considered, among other things. So um, be listening, but not tonight, because tonight you have to listen here. Um, welcome to Levine Museum of the New South. How many folks, this is the first time at Levine Museum of the New South? Several of you. Thank you so much for coming. Uh, we are a history museum. We look at the South since the Civil War. That's when people started talking about a new South. Uh, at the end of the Civil War, slavery was gone. The South was in shambles. It had to reinvent itself. And that is really what we are about. We look at how the South has reinvented itself and reinvented itself and reinvented itself and is still reinventing itself. So we're really looking at, at the past as it informs our own lives. And food is a great way to look at that kind of thing. So if you go through our permitted exhibit, Cotton Fields to Skyscrapers Downstairs, uh, the first thing you'll see is a, a kitchen table in a tenant farmer's house 100 years ago, 150 years ago. And one of the last things that you'll see is um, a, a lunch counter from the 1960s. Um, and um, everything in between. There's a, a big grocery shelf of uh, foods that are now all southern foods, um, including churros from Mexico and um, stuff from all over the world is now part of this south. So that's what we'll talk about tonight is we'll look at the traditions that each of the panelists have brought with us, but also the traditions that you have brought with you. And uh, I need to be especially grateful to the Arts and Science Council. If you're new to Charlotte, you need to know about the Arts and Science Council. It is sort of our united way for the arts. It's a way that folks contribute, uh, that money is pooled together and then given out to cultural institutions, everything from the Symphony and Discovery Place and the Raptor Center uh, to Charlotte Folk Music Society and to Levine Museum of the New South. So Arts and Science Council, a real important thing to support here in Charlotte. So we have all these experts. We have all of these experts. And I'm going to, I'm going to, I hope this doesn't offend Mark, but I'm going to start out with the questions, with the audience, with you. I'm going to ask you to remember for me, I'll, I'll bet there's a food that you grew up with that when you think about that food, you remember you're growing up. And I'll bet you that you shared that food with your family, with a friend, something that brought people together. What food reminds you of growing up? Pick some, somebody, somebody put your hand up, and, and, and I'm going to come over to you, and I'm, I'm going to get you to tell a little bit about it. Uh, sweet potato pie. And 
Where'd you grow up? I grew up uh, a lot of different places, but mainly in the South, in South Carolina. And I just remember my mom making the best sweet potato pie. And we would sit there, there are five of us, and eat the whole thing right after she made it while it was hot. <laughs> All right. I'm going to come over to your house. Let's see. I saw a hand over here. Yes. Chicken and dumplings. Chicken, Chicken and dumplings. So where are you from? I'm a native. woo <laughs> A native of Charlotte? <laughs> cool. My husband, too. We're both natives. So talk about how your family your family would have chicken and dumplings. I just remember my mom, you know, the whole chicken, cutting up a whole chicken and stewing it and then rolling out the, the dumplings. And, and I didn't like them, but, <laughs> I, you know, I knew, I knew they were good. I just didn't, I didn't care for them. So I had to sit there at the table and... So I at least tasted it and ate my butter bread. So, What would you rather have eaten? Fried chicken. <laughs> Fried chicken. All right. Let's see. We've got all sorts of hands over here, and we've, we've got a, 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 an able assistant here on the microphone. Pick out somebody good on that side. Don't want to favor everybody here on this side. Um, for me, it's pancakes. Pancakes. All right. And the reason why I think it's pancakes is because it was because... I learned how to make pancakes with my dad at a very early age, and so it's one of the first things that I could do by myself. I think by the time I was seven, eight, or nine, I can't remember exactly, I was sneaking into the kitchen and firing up the pan and making pancakes all by myself. Cool. Yeah. And then you'd eat them with your dad? I guess. I can't remember that. I'm sure I'd share. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't eat all that by myself. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Let's see, I've got, got another hand over here. In my case, I was born in Jamaica, and um, I started, well, learning how to season meats at a very early age, from the age of seven. And now today, being a caterer, I have a knack where I can eyeball and be able to season and know exactly without you having to use salt or pepper. Now, now which kind of meat particularly do you remember? Actually, I prefer lamb. Mm-hmm. And, and what, what seasoning do you remember putting on it? Well, in my particular case, in Jamaica, I would use, like, um, what do you call it? It looks like peppercorn, it's pimento, and, uh, you know, and all spices, or scallion, you know, where you see today, you know, people refer to it as something else, but that's what we use. Cool. Yum, yum. What do we got over there? Yeah. My aunt's homemade ice cream. Uh, they had a dairy farm in eastern Colorado, and my aunt would go out on Sunday morning and milk the cows and separate the milk and take in the cream. And we all got to turn, take hands turning the ice cream churn for Sunday dessert. Yeah, now you can go into the I, – I wouldn't personally do this, but you can go into the freezer of an evening and get a whole quart of ice cream and sit there and eat it by yourself. No. I, I've never done that. No, th- this was this but was way Then you special. couldn't do it. You had, to, you had to bring people together. <laughs> very good. We've got somebody in the front here. I grew up on um, black beans and rice and roast pork. And I would guess that you grew up in Cuba? Absolutely. (laughs) Yes, sir. I did. And and tell about um, who would would eat all of this. Um, Well, every weekend almost we would have, like, um, all the family would come over. Um, Sometimes we'd go to different homes, but we would always have family gatherings and Oftentimes, we'd roast, my family would roast a large pork. The men would roast the pork, and the ladies would be in the kitchen doing the rice and the beans and the such. 
That's wonderful. I, I go to one of the Cuban restaurants here fairly re- frequently, and I am my wife and I go, and we're the only couple there. Everything else is whole, all families. So, um, it, yeah, I, I can see that that tradition continuing. Let's see. Do we have uh, other ones? How about here? Mine is also pancakes, but sourdough pancakes. Um, my mother grew up outside of San Francisco. And we always had sourdough in the house, and you have to use it constantly to keep the starter going. And she would try to make uh, rolls every week, but if she didn't get them done, she would have to use them for something, and she would make sourdough pancakes. And and who eats the pancakes in your family? All of us. (laughs) All of us. I like that. Yes? I grew up all over the state of South Carolina, and my famous, my favorite memory is covered dish experiences, whether they be at church or after a death in a family where people would come together and and in different parts of the state, different kinds of food would be represented and represented in different ways. And just knowing, seeing that heritage throughout the state and how people presented themselves in those times were cool. wonderful. Yeah, there are many South Carolinas. So the, the, the localness of food is, is very obvious in that state, I think. Very cool. Who else? Let's see. Let me move to the back because I think you can get all with folks in the front. Who, who in the back here? Yes. At tamales. I'm from Los Angeles, and my whole family at Christmas, we made tamales. And it'd take a dozen more warm women and the children, and everybody worked the masa, and everybody made the tamales. And they cooked the rest of the afternoon, and the family played. And then when they were ready, we had dinner, and it was a party. And, and what tradition does this come out of? What country? Uh, Mexico. My family's from Mexico. Mexico. Very good. Yeah, the, the Christmas tamales thing. Um, I, I now know enough people from that part of the world that Christmas tamales are now part of my tradition. Let's see. I saw another hand here. Um, my grandmother made the best um, homemade spanakopita with these. She would use these long, this big, long um, dowel, and she would roll out great big pieces of phyllo as big as a table and it's the best I've ever had in my life and we'd get the we'd go to the corner store and get this the big the best feta out of this great big barrel and I've, I've never tasted anything as good as that and I can't reproduce it to the, and where is this um, I grew up in Miami and I I had a lot of good Cuban food there too <laughs> so. and and I'm, I'm assuming this is a Greek tradition Greek, yes. Yeah, we grew up Greek. Yeah. Very good. There's a, a Syrian bakery in our neighborhood that has the long dowels and the, the marble tables, and they, they roll out. It's called Golden Bakery. So let's see. I think uh, someone over there. Yes. Um, I think like many of you, my food also reflects um, culture as well. I'm half Japanese, so for me it's just rice. Simply rice is what I remember about growing up, um, Japanese sticky rice in particular. Um, and I remember it being a process growing up that you had to let the rice soak for, you know, several hours before you would cook it. Um, even the rice maker that my dad would cook rice in had a story that was passed down um, from his grandmother that came from Japan. So it's very much culturally tied. So I'm enjoying hearing all of the uh, narratives that you guys are sharing. It's great. And talk about who would come together around that table. Um, it was actually just my dad and I growing up, so mm-hmm. it was a chance for my dad and I to, um, to eat dinner together. He was adamant that every night we would sit down and, and share a meal together, kind of no matter what was going on in, in our lives. So it, was, it wasn't a big gathering. It was just him and I, but it was something that he was um, intent on setting a time and a place for every single night. I think that's a wonderful thing. I think it's a wonderful thing. Other folks who had family 
always eat together traditions. I see two hands here. I grew up on a small farm in western New York State, and I have these memories of um, my brothers and sisters and I kind of being forced to pick everything from our huge garden and much to our chagrin, but my memory is of us all sitting around the picnic table with these giant bowls of beans that had to be snapped and peas that had to be shelled and et cetera, corn that had to be shucked, and then my mom and I in the kitchen blanching them and freezing them and all of us around the table all throughout the year eating off of what we grew and what we processed together. I'm going to go out on a limb and share something a little different here. Um, I grew up in a giant Irish Catholic family. So from the early 50s, it was all about how you could feed a giant family very cheap. And so I have really fond memories around bags of potato chips and French onion dip. (laughs) So though I may not eat that now, it's one of my earliest food gathering memories. (laughs) I love that. One more on this side, maybe? There we go. I grew up on Cape Cod in Massachusetts uh, with a house. We're very fortunate right on the water, and we would all clam for days and days and days and have bushels of clams and have giant clam bakes where all the cousins and, again, another huge Irish Catholic, Italian Catholic family and people that we didn't speak to for the rest of the year would come. (laughs) And they were suddenly our close, close relatives when we had bushels of clams and, you know, huge traps full of lobsters to cook on that one, you know, the first week of the year of Memorial Day when the season opened, and that was just huge. And I don't think I would have known any of the hundreds of cousins I have without those clamming licenses. Wonderful. That, that's um, reminding me of um, when Ron Goodwin and I were talking a little bit earlier. Um, that I, I live very close to the Charleston House, which is this wonderful restaurant that he ran for many years. And um, I kind of figured that I might get this kind of answer, but I said, what food do you remember growing up? And you immediately said, Washington's. And he pronounces them correctly. Now, look at the microphone rather than look at me. I know I'm right. some I am. Mm-hmm. But talk about oysters. Well, oysters, we have, like, if I go home this weekend, I would look in the papers to see who's having an oyster roast. You really don't have to know the people who's having oyster <laughs> roast. You, a church might be giving it, um, different fraternities and sorority. You just go pay your money and go around that hot table and eat oysters until you get tired. So that's one of the things. And we sort of do the same thing with crabs, crab crackings and oyster rolls. So that's, um, yeah, I understand when you say everybody come out. I mean, you have the minister, you have everybody who just got out of wherever he's been that would come to an oyster roll. Other other seafood traditions that folks have. Anybody else have a seafood tradition? Yeah. Shrimp and grits. Oh, boy. Down in Charleston. Low country. That's <laughs> just loud. <laughs> now, talk about shrimp and grits in, in your growing up. Was that something that well, existed that, then? Or? That was one of the main things. I mean, we, the pers- first person who got up in the morning put on the grits, and whatever was in the house you had, and usually you had some shark, uh, you had shrimp, uh, uh, herring, but it was always seafood. Uh, uh, my diet was seafood for a long, long time. 
Uh, we didn't know nothing about steaks. Um, there was seafood was easy to catch. Um, it was inexpensive, not like now. And uh, we did shrimps and crabs and things all kinds of ways. Um, crab cakes was still one of my favorites. Um, um, and we used to make the shrimp patties like you make hamburgers. We would mix it with the flour thing and fry it off just like a, a hamburger patty. It would be just made with shrimps. But shark is still one of my favorite foods. I, um, uh, we have shark a lot of places now. I see Harris Teeter carry carried a lot now. But that was a, a, another staple in the house because people would throw sharks away when they would go fishing in. My family loved it, so we had a lot of that. Left. And you had to eat a lot because we didn't have freezers during that time. Yeah. Wow. Amy Rogers, you wrote this wonderful book uh, called Hungry for Home. Tell, tell a little bit about, um, and, and that's kind of what we're talking about here, but as, as Ron talks about the, the food that reminds him of home, how did you get the idea to, to write this book? What, what will f- folks find in it when they go and buy one? Well, first of all, thanks, everyone, for coming, and thanks to Levine Museum of the New South for hosting us, for WFAE, all the partners, everyone who supports this wonderful series of conversations. Um, You know, there's a saying that I saw on a bumper sticker a long, long time ago that said, I wasn't born in the South, but I got here as fast as I could. (laughs) And um, I'm a Southerner by choice. I grew up in a staunchly Northern Eastern European Jewish immigrant tradition where the food I remember most fondly from my childhood is smoked fish. And I was probably 30 years old before I learned that not every six-year-old knows how to take a boning knife and debone an entire chub, you know, and put it on the Sunday brunch table while the uncles and aunts and cousins and families, you know, let's face it, arguing. (laughs) You know, so that was my tradition, and I didn't know that that was unusual in any way. So um, after becoming a Carolinian a couple of decades ago and, and being a journalist, it occurred to me that food is probably the best way to learn about any place and the people who live there. So it's been the way that I've explored my adopted home. And when I collected recipes and stories from old and new Carolinians um, for this book, I didn't just want the recipes from from the people who felt motivated to share their stories. I wanted to know what made those memories especially meaningful. So there are things that you might not prepare that have very compelling stories behind them, and there are things that we prepare so often as to become completely commonplace that have deeper levels of meaning that we're not always aware of. Like potato chips and French onion dip. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, sometimes the ordinariness of a food is what's important about it. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's a food that comes down to us from tradition that that folks have been eating for hundreds of years, and sometimes it's, it's something brand new. Um, and that's, that those are part of the stories as well. Tara Quinones. Hello. You're from Manhattan, but your family is from? I was actually born in Manhattan, but raised in the Catskill Mountains in a little town that if you blink, you drive right by it. Between New Paltz and Newburgh, anyone? Anyone? Yay, my people. <laughs> 
Yes, West Point. Yes, I'm an Army brat, so I know West Point. But your family ran a resort, a little I, resort. I grew up ever since, ever since I came out, I guess. Um, I was raised in a summer resort. Uh, people would come from the city on buses, and they would go to the villas upstate New York. My grandfather owned the biggest. He had a 75-acre resort, and all I know is there were probably two or three people who were not family who worked with us. We, as little children, were up until two or three or until we fell over, polishing silverware, setting the table, clearing the table. Um, we served uh, a mixed crowd, but predominantly Latin, that would come from New York City. They would buy a ticket and stay the whole weekend. We had hotel rooms, bungalows, cottages. The band stayed all weekend. It was quite a production, and my grandfather was in charge of it all. And when you looked tired, he would hand you a $5 bill, and you would wake up. <laughs> That's how that works. <laughs> this, is, this is a new story to me. I, I know the Catskills is a resort for Jewish people from New York City. How yes. many folks know that, that tradition? How many folks know it for Puerto Rican people? This was a new thing for me. What, what kind of food would people have when they got there? It wasn't my choice, but I think the Puerto Ricans took over a little bit. Uh-huh. Um, we had, uh, when you all were saying what you felt about when you grew up, for most of the summer, and God forgive me, I was sick of it. You know, when you're an adult, you miss the things that you just did not want to eat. Where's my chicken and dumpling lady? You did not want to eat it, right? I sat at the table for hours, and I was strong-headed, and I had to eat it or I couldn't get up. It was pernir, which is roast pork. Arroz con gandules, a traditional yellow rice. Um, the gandules are pigeon peas. Uh, we put some fresh garlic and olive oil right on top of the pork. We would have tostones, which are fried plantains. Um, we served family style, predominantly that meal, Friday and Saturday and Sunday, and they ate it all weekend. <laughs> and then you can imagine during the week, Monday through Thursday, um, my mother would say, walk down the street and go to Poppy's and get some food. And I was like, oh, no, please. But um, I love it. And now I make a living off of it, so I love it. <laughs> Very cool. Very cool. Now, Stephen Kratz is um, just recently, at least from my advanced age, out of Winthrop University and is using food to create a community among folks your age and many ages, actually, in Rock Hill. And um, the, the place at the table thing that you did um, earlier this year, it was in January, right? right. Yeah. Uh, tell people about that and, and, and what it was, because this is a pretty amazing piece of organizing. Yeah, so I'm part of a small but intentional uh, collective of artists in my neighborhood. So... We've known each other for a number of years now since we started college together, a lot of us. And um, we have tried to collaborate um, on work that might make inquiry into the ideas of truth, goodness, and beauty. So, um, you know, as we've done our, our kind of vocational art work together, we've also just ended up around the table um, a lot through the years and have gardened together and um, kind of learned our own, our own recipes from, from each other and created new things and our pots keep getting bigger and we get bigger pieces of giant iron things to put over a fire seems like every other year so um, 
anyway, we kind of wanted to um, uh, look at those ideas, again, of truth, goodness, and beauty. They seemed kind of uh, abstract, transcendent, but around the table they, they're given uh, skin, you know, and uh, sort of in the interaction between each other. And so we thought, let's um, share that with a, a broader community beyond our little core and see what other people might have to say about this. So, so yeah, we just had a really great weekend um, of about 100 folks just from around the Charlotte region and then several other states as well. And uh, we ate well and um, had a lot of good conversations. So we're, we're doing more of that. Molly O'Neill, the food writer from the New York Times, came down, and Dan Huntley, who some of you know as Dan the Pig Man, the barbecue guy, um, barbecued all sorts of amazing things. And uh, Peter Reinhardt, who many of you know as the uh, baker and the um, chef on assignment at um, uh, Johnson & Wales and on Charlotte Talks with Mike Collins, um, was there and sort of connecting these, these sort of abstract intellectual kind of things with the lived experience with, of food. And um, it was fun. It was really cool. Um, I, I, I made him do this. You brought along some quotes. Give us, give us a quote from one of the, the folks who you've read that inspired you as you did this. Well, for one, I was talking with a friend the other day, and um, you know, he, he said food kind of is the context where uh, relationships have a chance to begin. Um, you don't just walk up to a stranger and say, I'd like to be friends. Let's get started. You know, and, um, you know but like this guy, uh, I met him across the table. And, um, you know, it just gives a chance um, for something to happen. It's, uh, Peter Reinhardt calls it sacramental magic. But um, uh, Briat Savaran said that um, surely it was around the table that language was born and perfected. I mean, one, because of the frequency of being there, and then also because of the, uh, I think he said something like the, the relaxation uh, that a feast gives you um, leads to confidence and loquacity. So um, it, it just creates a context where... Uh, real things happen. Very cool. Very cool. As folks have questions and comments to add, put your hand up and and we'll bring a microphone to you. (laughs) But I'd like to call on panelist Amy Rogers, who may have something to say. (laughs) Well, I just want to echo what Stephen said um, and quote, as I understand, the late, great Harry Golden to have said back in a time of great turmoil and great community strife when there were all sorts of racial injustices and issues and violence and the community efforts were underway to try and bring some sort of not even consensus, but just a way to connect, to start, to begin, to work towards something that would eventually, hopefully, maybe one day become consensus. And he very famously or infamously said, no eaten, no meeting." <laughs> you, you know, which is, of course, you know, not as, as eloquent as Stevens just quoted Briat Saverin, but I think those are two sides of the same coin. You know, it is both 
everything that is elevated and lofty and aspirational about the way we connect. And it's also kind of like a bottom line deal breaker if you don't have it. That's true. Mm-hmm. T- tell people a little bit about Harry Golden. How many folks have heard of Harry Golden? A number of you, but not a, a number of you haven't. Harry Golden was a writer, a thinker, a bringer together, a civil rights guy, but he was also an eater. Talk, and talk a about Harry Golden. Um, you know, he, he was a, a northerner come south, and... Most of us are called damn Yankees. I prefer to call it Southern by choice, you you know. But he waded into the fray of a really um, tumultuous time in this region's history that was also writ large across the whole country during the 60s when there was just untold strife and discord. And he did it in a way that was so outrageous to polarize people. You either loved him or you hated him. You thought he was brilliant or you thought he was a complete crackpot. But again and again, it came down to food. And that really kind of caught fire um, at a community organizing level in a lot of ways. I'm not saying Harry started it, but he certainly, you know, really kind of crystallized what that whole thing was about when he said, no eating, no meeting. You know, at table was where people brought their best manners and where people often were able to set aside some of their baser impulses that in other places wouldn't have played out so productively. You may know um, in our main exhibit, if you haven't been there, you need to go take a look at it. There's a section on Harry Golden, but there's also a section on Maggie Ray. And Maggie Ray, during the busing controversy here, when the Supreme Court in 1971 said that Charlotte would be the test case for court-ordered busing, kids going across town to integrate the schools, um, a lot of people just didn't want to deal with it. And Maggie Ray said, I'm going to invite them over for dinner because we're all Southerners. At that point, most folks who were around here had come from the South, had been raised, whether they're black, white, rich, or poor, their mamas told them not to fuss over dinner. And so she invited people to dinner, and that's how Charlotte worked out uh, racial integration in uh, the 1970s with busing. And it was um, written up in Time magazine. It was a, and we have her casserole dish. So you've <laughs> got to go see the casserole dish in the museum there. Now, you're talking about northerners coming south. And um, somebody else on the panel, talk about what it's like to come to the South or what it's like to see these new people coming to the South. And I'm kind of looking at Tara because I know that she came here from New York. And I'm not saying it right. (laughs) I came here from actually South Florida. Ah, okay. I I hung out down there for nine years uh, after I graduated from the Culinary Institute of America. And I do want to say my experience. When I moved here, um, coming from New York, which is a big mixing bowl of cultures and people in the South Florida area. I came to the South, and in my experience, everyone's very nice. Everyone stops mowing the lawn and waves to you. I was like, man, they're so rude in New York, but not all of us. Um, I learned that there are lots of people in the nine years I've been here, there's lots of people coming here for one reason or another, myself included. I've really latched on to Southern cooking. Um, I enjoy it very much. I've been able to share my my food, all kinds of food. But I've noticed that 
There are lots of people when I moved here who said, man, you speak English really well. <laughs> so I was like, uh, yes, I, yes, ma'am, I do. Uh, how old were you when you came to this country? You know, stuff like that. So um, it's different here for me because now today there are a lot more culture, a lot more you know, things going on than when I first moved here. But um, Everyone who looks like me is not from Mexico. Um, everyone who looks like me, English is not there. As a matter of fact, Spanish is my second language. I'd probably be afraid to speak to some of you. You would probably correct my Spanish. But um, it's very diverse here in Charlotte now, and I appreciate that. And I'm glad that there are so many people with an open mind uh, about different cultures and different foods. So I just want to say, just to put it out there, Open up your mind and know that not everyone eats the same, speaks the same, looks the same, or is from the same Latin country, et cetera, et cetera. Just educate. If you, if you were like me when I first got here, I was, like, a little angry. I was like, what's going on? Just one by one, educate the person you're speaking to. You know, invite them over for dinner. Invite them to learn about your culture or about you, and that's how it's going to happen. That's how the South is going to be more diverse like that. And now in, in restaurants around Charlotte, restaurants and grocery stores, you can eat your way through many Latin American cuisines. Yeah. Um, I can remember um, Jose Hernandez Perez, who some of you know, who's a diversity specialist with the CMS, was talking about a moment that I remember as well in the mid-1980s when the first Mexican restaurant run by actual real Latino people opened in Charlotte, El Cancun. Mm -hmm. Anybody remember El Cancun? Yes. Amen. Okay. Um, and, and now, you know, you can eat in different parts of Mexico. You can eat in Uruguay or Peru or um, Venezuela or Colombia. Um, and it's in, you know, here in Charlotte. So that's a, a tremendous change. And I see a hand over there. Let's see if we can get a, a microphone over there to react to that. Well, I think it goes even further than that, and that is that to your comment about the mixed Latino cultures, um, we have restaurants that some of us have eaten at, such as Three Amigos, where the, if, I, if I've got it right, the owners are a couple that are a mix of Ecuadorian and Dominican, and the cook <laughs> is Mexican. So, you know, the, the cuisine and the name of the restaurant are already a hybrid between two languages, and then you've got a further hybrid. So, um, I would concur with what you said. There's an awful lot going on, and it gets more interesting every single day. Now, Ron Goodwin, growing up in Charleston, was there a moment when you realized that there was a whole culinary world outside of Charleston? Was That must have been something of a shock. I mean, you're in such a, a place that is so much a, a proud and, and good at its own cooking. Was there a moment when... The rest of the world kind of opened its its its. Well, like coming to Charlotte, it was like bringing your culture here. If we look at it, twenty years ago, when I came here, uh, all the things we talk about Charlotte. Charlotte was a beginner with all the restaurants, and uh, I believe the restaurant I own called Windows on Trade was uh, one or two tabletops tablecloth restaurant uptown Charlotte. Well, that's before Bank America and everything else. That was where Sonoma's was. I built that space out. 
So Charlotte to me was almost like a beginner to bring in things. And uh, Shrimp and Grits was very new to Charlotte. And, and um, bringing in crawfish etouffee and things like that where I lived in New Orleans and coming here. So Charlotte was sort of easy in a way because everything that you did was almost new and, and, and it brought in something different and, and, and it helped business a lot because people, what do you have different down there? What do you have new? So you had that. Charlotte was really, was meat and potatoes as far as I know. And if you looked at Uptown, we had stand and snacks. We didn't have really nice restaurants and things like that. So it wasn't hard putting things into Charlotte. Um, and we've learned, uh, uh, particularly through the, the church I go to, First uh, uh, Church Baptist uh, West on Oaklawn, uh, and my pastor's back there, and uh, we do a lot of festive kinds of things, but with meaning. To, to bring, you know, to have things to learn about that, but to keep people together. You know, food is more than just learning about something. It is to talk about it, to be different, to have scrambled situations. When I was in the college food service, I started the first salad bars and um, make your own deli, your own sandwich, and that brought kids together. What are you putting on that one? Is that good taste? If you put that on... So you have, when you bring people together, and Dr. Woods, I, don't, uh, I like to invite this group, especially this lady. We're having a Mexican night next Friday. Uh, our youth um, is having uh, its revival. And I'm roasting a pork with scallion, uh, garlic, and hot peppers. And go slow roast that for about three days and let them pull it and put it on some nice bread. And with the beans and rice, and then I'm going to have Mexican rice, which is sort of similar to what we call red rice in Charleston. Uh, uh, some people call Spanish rice. It's very little. Maybe just put more tomatoes in it. So I think we've got enough space. I'm inviting this group to come. <laughs> Now come, call over to the church and come down and have a fest with us. We're going to have, I have a cake and I forgot the name of it, but it's a Mexican cake made with cream. And it's all, yes. Everybody all together? Thank you. Thank you, because, but I know how to make it. Um, And it's with a lot of cream. It's almost like our old rum cake. It's, uh, and it's, it's delicious. It's, it's really good. Uh, The guy that, taught me how to make is the Soares Bakery over here of um, Carlos. And if you know anything about Carlos, Carlos is from um, um, Cuba. Cuba. And in fact, Carlos' father and Castro were very close buddies back in the day. So Carlos makes, whenever I need different dishes, Mexican, well, just Carlos could bring it to me when it comes to desserts. But Charlotte was sort of easy. I, I had three restaurants here and also City Fair. City Fair was, could have been something good, but it was new. I remember I was on Central Charlotte board when we fought to get um, the vendors in the street. You'd be surprised how we were. People couldn't believe that you could sell a hot dog off a cart without <laughs> poisoning somebody. <laughs> um, my wife 
woke me up one morning and says, I don't know what you did. I said, what's wrong? She said, you're on the front page. <laughs> I fought Charlotte and got 54 tickets to get on-street parking because they wouldn't give me on-street parking. And their real reason was they had to wash the streets at night. Well, there was nobody down here to dirty them up, so you didn't have to worry about washing them during that time. But so Charlotte, to me, you said coming in and learning that Charlotte was new. Charlotte was different. When I went to New Orleans, I learned a lot about New Orleans because New Orleans was similar to Charleston, but a lot different in their method of cooking. So, yeah, it was a little different coming to Charlotte. was new. It was easy. Mm -hmm. Stephen Crotz, talk a little bit about the um, Fourth of July you all had, um, a gathering and in front, he, they, they do this. This group um, just kind of brings people together. And um, what, what did you do? You, you had some traditions. You had some new things. Um, yeah, so one of our friends, um, and since, since I've met him um, in the last couple of years, he, he has a family farm, which was like a big piece of land where a couple of horses lived a few years ago. Um, but now they are, they've got ducks and geese and chickens and um, hogs. Um, they're raising heritage breed hogs. Mm -hmm. And um, we kind of, a group of us went in together to, to um, put the money down to get some of these piglets. And now they've had two litters over the last couple of years. And um, they're beautiful animals. And um, anyway, and they're being cared for, you know, rightly. And um, so at any rate, we... All got together over there, and um, we cooked, slow cooked, um, smoked one of these hogs, and um, and in the big iron wash pot, we we did hash, which is a South Carolina thing that North Carolinians might not be familiar with it. But this is not corned beef hash. No, no, no. you Irish so, folk. Tell tell what. So happened. yeah, and and most of the people there um, had never had this because even uh, down in Rock Hill, a lot of the folks aren't native to. This area, so, um, and, and how do you make hash? Yeah, you've got big chunks of beef, uh, pork, venison, maybe. It, it depends on what part of South Carolina you're in. Even um, where I'm from, I'm at the very edge of the uh, what's called the Dutch Fork or the, or the Mustard Belt, where uh, there's a German influence. So I've got mustard in mine, but the the meat just falls apart after being cooked mm -hmm. all day, and it's kind of stringy. It's it's velvety. And it's served over rice, which um, you know was South Carolina thing was a big mm -hmm. thing uh, in the Low Country. The, the rice was so it was pretty delicious. And, uh, and who, who who all came? Oh man, all kinds of folks. Uh, I met a lot of people, but um, you know it's it's there's the core group of uh, the church, and then neighbors and family come into town and. And you've been having some Chinese exchange students. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So um, we're in Rock Hill. We have Winthrop University, and there's a really great um, growing group of um, Chinese exchange students, among others. Um, but I've had a, a great chance to, to get to uh, work with some of these um, Chinese students uh, in the kitchen a little bit and learn from them. And um, that's beginning to influence um, my cooking. I hope it will because it's just so delicious. And it's simple and it's healthy. Um, and 
Yeah. On Facebook, you were posting some pickles. Oh, right, last night. So, so I went up to the <laughs> – Tom introduced me to the Grand Asia installings, which is a Grand wonderland. Asia. Go there on a field trip um, and eat and get stuff. But anyway, my larder is full of all these weird Chinese things now. So, of course, we got a lot of cucumbers coming in from the garden, mm-hmm. and I had to do something with them. So I just got a bunch of my Chinese spices, like the, the little Sichuan peppercorns that make your yeah. tongue tingle and uh, some other stuff. So we'll see how that works out. I haven't tried one yet. Old traditions and new traditions. Amy Rogers, I think and, and, and you look like you're about to say something. Nope. Um, you know, almost never at a loss, but is anybody else getting hungry? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I see a hand here. <laughs> Hi, this is a question for the panel. Um, I, this is kind of a question about the gathering power of food to create awkward moments at times. I, I'm not a I'm not a meat eater, and so I have no personal beef with people who who do eat meat. But what me and uh, uh, what I, what I found when I just it just sort of comes up organically in a conversation. Uh, I'm a vegetarian, and I'll get into. The, I'll get a few questions about the specifics of a diet or why I'm doing. It. And all of a sudden, the other person seems like they're on defensive. They'll be like, uh, "Well, you know, I, I, I'm eating. I try to eat a lot of vegetables, you know, or something <laughs> like that to to justify their their their, their meat eating. And and I'm not even and I'm not even trying to criticize them for their decision of what they eat because I know it's a very personal decision. And so um, I, I would love the panel to sort of speak to that. Um, uh, any awkward moments you've had concerning what you eat when you come, when you uh, interact with other people who uh, may not, may just not be flexible. They just draw the line on certain things. It can be really hard to create a vegan, gluten-free, cruelty-free, organic, (laughs) macrobiotic Thanksgiving. (laughs) Can be done. And the rule at my table is everybody just kind of tries their best, you know. If if you're going to be really, really specific and restrictive about what you can or, or aren't able to eat, help me out, meet me halfway. You know, bring some stuff, work with you. That's real good. It's not insulting, you know, if you come into a home or a place and, and you bring something, especially when you uh, and and just include it into the dish. Um, one of the questions in the meeting we were having uh, on the, 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 the Mexican day we're having is, what we're going to do for vegetarians. But then if you look at it, everything was almost vegetarian anyway. But it's just um, so I think what's happening, people bring food if they get invited and they don't eat. They can participate that way. And I don't think the guest sometimes is insulted if you you did that. And you could call them ahead of time and let them know uh, your, your, your differences and can you bring that dish. And they probably would welcome it. And include it, and then you'll be teaching them something new. Um, and who knows? Uh, um, I don't eat much meat now either, and that's not because I don't like it. It's because my uh, health diet doesn't permit me to eat certain things. So, um, 
I, I, I like the, the question about awkward mm. moments and the gathering power of food. Is there an awkward moment? Perhaps there's one in the back there. Especially with the restaurateurs and people who bring people together. When the coffee cup was off of Moorhead, I witnessed people with hard hats and, and men who wore shirts and ties, white shirts and ties, would sit side by side. And I don't see that quite as much anymore, or at least maybe I'm going the wrong places. I'm wondering how you structure either a space or the price point or the food to get people who normally don't sit next to each other where it would be awkward if they did not speak. You know, if you're on a subway car, it's awkward if you speak. But if you're sitting side by side, it's awkward if you don't speak. So how can you structure a space in which very different types of people will interact? Ron Goodwin, you were telling me something about cakes. You did something with cakes. Well, that's and, – and, and uh, this – uh, board meeting I used to have um, once a month, and they used to be s like they were afraid of each other. So what I did once uh, one day, I put a big, beautiful cake, different kind, on each table. But you couldn't eat the cake on your table. <laughs> you had to go to the other table and get a piece of cake. So it made them move around and talk and mingle. And they said, when are we going to have another one? We weren't even finished with that one because they got them talking and moving. But the thing about people in hard hats and people in suits, they work that out. They go for the food. They know what the food is about. There's no accident that they go to the coffee cup. You know why you going. You were going to the coffee cup. So they expected to meet um, all nationalities, all hard hats, and, 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 and after one thirty, you can go and you can be free of the heart because those guys got to go back to work. <laughs> so, you know, if you were afraid of that, but they, that works itself out. Um, um, and food has been probably our best weapon in, 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 in gathering to help things work. I remember uh, I had a little girl to work with for me, and she had was having a baby. She was in the TAPS program, um, and I gave them a prom because the schools, the Charlotte system didn't have a prom for the girls who had been pregnant. And that year, 46 girls came and one guy. <laughs> so I decided I need to find out why. So I went to people in the school system. They couldn't tell me, so... I got a couple of people together and said, let's have at Renaissance once a month the guys, the girls, the siblings, the parents, the grandparents there. So we did this meal once a month, and it started off being about 20, 30, and it ended up being 120, and it got me scared because it was costing a lot of money. <laughs> but... The most gratifying thing about that was the guys would come by and show me what they were buying for their newborn to come where they didn't. So food has been always a way to bring people together and hold people together. Another quick thing I did when Wesleyan School was uptown, these kids was from an alternative school, so a lot of them weren't smart. So I did something where... In, the, the, once a month, they would have a steak dinner if they come to school that whole month without missing. 
That dining room used to be so full with kids who had gone to school for a whole year without missing, who had never been to school two weeks in a row. <laughs> so food, we know, is that kind of thing to bring people. But not only that it brings people together, it holds people together. So uh, I, I, I'm fortunate enough that in my retirement days that I'm over with Dr. Woods, who's not near to retire, but he believes in some of the things and how to bring people together and how to have the festive kind of food. We had a rainbow uh, luncheon, and it was packed. And the, the thing about that, it was I had the salad bar on one side, I had the dessert on one, had the beverage. It scrambled. It made people talk. It made people come together. It made people do because you couldn't get it all in one big buffet line or somebody. Uh, and Tara probably meeting this now when we have um, wedding reception. Sometimes I hate to do wedding reception. I've done over 2,000. <laughs> I hate it because... With the wedding planners and things, there's no personality involved. Where's the grim? Where is the aunt? Where's the people that got to, well, yeah, I'm going to make sure that I do this and I do the same. Bringing those people together doing wedding receptions was so great. It was so nice. And now you listen at a wedding planner who learned off TV on how to plan a wedding, and then you have them running you crazy, and then I can't. I won't stop talking, so they get mad with me. They're mad with the caterer, and it's hard. But food is the answer in bringing people together, and I think we All do right. more things like that. All right. A lot of hands up here. Um, pick somebody, and, and let's get them to talk. There we go. Oh, okay. To answer the question about how do you bring people together, the yeah. one-word answer in my experience is diners. And I yeah. uh, had relatives, uh, grandparents of a cousin who owned a, a very vintage diner in uh, New Jersey. Mm -hmm. And it was a little, little thing. I mean, there was a row of small booths along the windows. There was an aisle. There was a row of seats along the counter. And uh, the, the owner, who everybody called Skinny, who was not skinny, was uh, <laughs> behind the counter cooking and, and kibbutzing with everybody who came in and out. So it was all talk in every direction. Cool. Yeah, the diner tradition, the, the physical buildings, the little silver buildings, the old trolley cars or whatever, they didn't really make it to the south. There are now a couple in Charlotte, but that's a new thing here. So that's mm -hmm. a, a food tradition that's coming in. Other ways to bring people together or other awkward moments. What do we got over here? I can appreciate the diner tradition because that, that really was part of growing up, and it's, it is a way to bring people together. I'd like to explore more the gentleman in the back, his discussion of using uh, food, but more of a common table kind of approach. We rarely see restaurants now have a common table. We, um, where, where people who want to meet other people can come in and all sit down together. It doesn't matter if you're one person or two people or three people, but that people can come in and actually meet other people in their neighborhood. You know, um, I was thrilled because next door at the public market, we now have a fourth ward community table. Mm -hmm. And it's nice if we can go in there and meet some of the neighbors we don't know. And that would be a great thing if we could introduce that. What does everybody think about that? I agree. Yes. Yes. How do we do it? Who's willing? <laughs> there, there's a question on the table, so to speak. Hang on a second. 
This was my culture shock when I came from Germany. Uh, we talk about all this food gathering, and I go to a restaurant here, and then as soon as I put my fork down, I get the bill. And I have oh. to go. So That's how, nice. how can I gather and talk to maybe at a co common table with somebody else when I am finished? I get True. the bill and I have to leave, mm -hmm. which does not happen in my country. My husband is Cuban. In his culture, it's not uh, the same thing. You know, you, you sit and you talk. You drink another glass mm -hmm. of wine. and That's what I miss. And may I, may I say something about that? I admire him what he put together with all his friends, but I wonder where does he do it, you know? It doesn't happen. <laughs> May I say so? I agree with you one million percent, and that's the way I was raised. It, I've worked in many fine dining restaurants, both as the general manager, the manager, even the chef in the back, front and back of the house. I'm going to give you an explanation. It doesn't mean I agree with it. They are trying to turn the table so that they can make more revenue for their restaurant. It doesn't mean it's right. That would not happen in my restaurant. I don't have a restaurant, but if I had a restaurant, okay? So in my personal opinion, if you and I were having dinner and they did that, I would, number one, give my feedback immediately to the server and also to the manager because they need to know. I know you're trying to turn the table. I don't care if it's Saturday night. If it's my daughter's birthday and I'm spending $350 in this restaurant for the four of us or five of us, I'm going to sit there, and I'm, gonna, I'm not going to camp, don't get me wrong, but maybe we want to open gifts and have coffee, and I deserve that, whether I spend $350 or if I spend $27 and I'm having a hot dog. You know, it's an expensive hot dog, isn't it? <laughs> but so my uh, opinion, I agree with you, and my suggestion for all of you is just give that feedback to the server as well as to the manager. And in my day, I've served... Lots of tables. I can't imagine how many. Um, you would always ask, when you're ready for the bill, please let me know. That's proper table etiquette. That's proper hospitality. I, I'm i a very hard person to go out and eat in a restaurant because I'm critiquing everything, and I try not to do it. <laughs> and I don't think my friends like to go out with me anymore, but um, I stay quiet. Um, but depending on where I'm at, you know, it's different. If you're at IHOP or if you're at Blue downtown, um, it's about hospitality, and I pray if there's any restaurant owners in here, servers, whoever, if you're in the business, please remember the hospitality. Remember why you don't want to hear something like that. You know, you don't want to be rushed out if you're spending $27 or 300 You know, you don't know why they're there. It could be a business meeting. It could be mourning someone. It could be a celebration. How about you just don't want to cook tonight, you know? So... If you're in the hospitality business or if you're not, just relay that. And maybe one day we can get it back where, but don't camp for four hours, though. I'm just kidding. <laughs> As I've gone to uh, Latin American restaurants in Charlotte, um, I've often run into a thing which is kind of the opposite of this, and I'm, I'm, I'm now learning what it means, where I'll sit at the table and they won't bring the check. La cuenta, por favor. And I don't want to go, hey, check. Um, and they won't bring the check, and they, they kind of don't bring the check. And eventually I go up, and they didn't expect to bring the check. They figured that when I was ready, I would come up to the counter, and now you're telling me, you're telling me, you know, that this is a, a European, Latino thing that, that we have lost as in, in American culture often. I, I saw a hand over here. Yes. 
Well, just this is just kind of a thought that occurred to me, an observation that maybe it's a little bit political, but obviously during the civil rights movement, when they had the sit-ins, maybe it wasn't coincidental that they were at a lunch counter. But that's just an observation that occurred to me. But also, I don't know how many people were here during Hurricane Hugo, but in our neighborhood, we were without power for two weeks. And everybody lost their power, and everybody had food, and they had to cook it out. And, and we all got together as neighbors, and we brought out our grills, and we all cooked out in the street. And we met neighbors that we'd never known that we'd lived there for 10 years, and we were all eating communally and sharing our food. And it was a great way to get to know each other, even though it was a brought about by, you know, sort of a catastrophic situation. But it was it was over food that we, you know, met and, you know, got to know each other. People come together, sorry, you want to go? People come together for, like I said, celebrations, um, funerals, mornings. Um, what about every day when you come home from work? The world is crazy now. Everyone comes home at 7 and 8. No one really comes home that much at 4 or 5. If you could make it a point, try your best to get your family together. Every day is fantastic. But as often as you can, if you have to start with once a week or whatever, but it's it's just it's kind of sad. That's my opinion. It, I'm not getting down on anybody, but it's sad that we don't do that anymore. I don't care if you're having a bowl of cornflakes. You know, I have people coming at me all the time. I'm very busy. Will you throw a pampered chef party for me? Will you host a pampered chef? Will you host a Tupperware? What, all these things. Nobody wants to come. Nobody wants to come. As soon as I say, hey, I made cannolis. Oh, you did. <laughs> you make cannolis? Okay, we'll come. You know, it just food, it just brings everybody together. It does. It's, it's what we all have in common. We're this very diverse group here. We all have to eat. You know, we all like sweets. We all like, you know, some of us, most of us. <laughs> so for me, the gathering power of food, it, it has some, a lot of emotion in it. You know, it, it helps you unwind after work, or it's helping you celebrate, or it's helping you remember someone who may have passed. Um, it's an emotional thing for me. Amy Rogers? I, I just wanted to comment on your remark about the civil rights movement. It was not an accident that people really took notice when the sit-ins kind of began and, and spread throughout the South because... Even people who could turn their backs on political protests and pickets and things like that couldn't ignore the fact that in a very real, everyday, universal way, people that we lived with side by side and often under the same roof um, in different sorts of arrangements you know, could not have access to that most basic elemental experience of walking into an establishment that serves food and being served food. And that, for me, was kind of the, the, the motivation to start really learning and writing about my adopted home in the Carolinas when I said, you know, everything really kind of is a food story if you follow it down to the roots. And um, I, I think that's one of the most poignant examples of it. Over here, yes. Oh, I am. I was going to say um, the the fact that um, in my country, when you sat at a formal meal, when you sat around with with people, you started out and um, you would have a glass of wine, you would eat your dinner, and while you're having dinner, there's conversation. Um, 
when you're when you're done with dinner, you know, you sit around and you're still conversing. After a few minutes, the coffee comes out, and then the dessert comes out. Sometimes you have maybe two cups of coffee, and then afterwards they usually sit and they'll so they'll break out the brandy, and then you <laughs> sit around the table. And um, sometimes a meal could take two hours just to just to enjoy a meal, and that's kind of what they call entremesos. Which is like once you once you sit down, you don't get up just out of the blues, and everybody doesn't eat at different times. Everybody eats at the same time. We all sit down together, and you enjoy the meal. And until everybody's done, um, people don't leave. Whereas here, um, John comes home at six and he eats his meal. Well, Molly already ate hers, and you know it just kind of the kids they had to eat separate, and they want to eat in front of the TV. So it kind of separates everybody, and that's what's kind of um, pulling people apart. Um, I think the way that it, it's structured um, in a lot of Latino countries, um, Spain is really big on that. Spain, you go to a restaurant, and, you know, it takes forever to get out of there. <laughs> so, yeah, I think that's, that's um, a tradition that should you know, be passed around. That would be a great thing to have here. Wow. So. It's also very unhealthy to eat quickly and move. It's very unhealthy to do that. It's unhealthy for your body, your digestion, also for your mind. Yeah, I just had a quick comment about getting together for food. Um, when my daughter was growing up, this is my niece, but when my daughter was growing up, um, we were moving at fast pace. I'd work full-time, part-time, but every day we had meals together at 6.30. But her, her comment to me was, what famous fast food restaurant are we eating at tonight? But it would be every night at 6.30, we'd get together, we'd have that dinner, and it would be an interview time for me to her. Find out, How was your day today? Oh, you met a guy. Oh, what does he look like? But it would be over a meal, 6.30 at that fast food place. <laughs> yeah, yeah it's, the, it's the coming together. It's the gathering power as much as it is the food. So this is cool. We've got all sorts of hands here. Yeah, just a uh, response to something about the uh, restaurants trying to turn tables over very rapidly. Um, one model that I've experienced is in another city, and you have your main meal, you sit, and then they have the dessert room. Yes, yeah. some restaurants. Dessert room? Mm-hmm. You uh, move. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it, it very pricey uh, restaurant, yes. but... You spend most of your money downstairs, and then they escort you upstairs to the dessert room for coffee, liqueur, or, and entertainment. I'm having a good time. <laughs> I think that one of the things that I'm um, pulling from tonight, I guess, that makes sense to me is that you start out talking about food memories, and that's generally what we're talking about from young childhood up. And I feel like children are, are kind of being left out these days as a mom of two young kids and it's a big part of what you know our our home because it's my passion but uh um i feel like they bring their friends over and i have to teach all their friends what to eat and how to eat but i think some of these awkward moments that can run from you know special diets to you know pickiness to whatever could be alleviated more if we would try to bring more children to the communal table and expose them to some of these different things. I have a question. Now, now you're talking about the table, but I happen to know that you helped start the Davidson Farmer's Market. 
you, um, you did something with the Davidson Farmer's Market. Farmer's markets are a great way to get kids involved in food, right? Exactly. So I did some um, demonstrations, food cooking demonstrations there. So, um, And I have also um, done some coordinating gardening with children and cooking as well. So, uh, you know. Yes. In that vein, I have a, a question for the group. Raise your hand if your house or apartment or condo has a dining room. Okay. Keep your hand up if you've used that room in the last no. week. No. Oh, see, now this makes me sad. Use it to eat. Yes. Okay. Um, let's just have a refresher. A dining room is a room where people can gather to eat. Um, there are other places to eat in one's home besides in front of the television or and so forth. And, and with the Davidson Farmer's Market, lady just said about um, involving children in meals and gatherings and food rituals and things like that. Folks, use that dining room. You know, use those dishes. That's a great way to have a kind of an everyday celebration, gathering of food, family, communication. Good so, things. so, Amy, your, your, your comment reminds me of something. So my wife and I just moved recently to Charlotte from the Boston area. And... Uh, Yay. Um, and actually, we probably have the largest dining room we've ever had. But, but like a lot of people who live here in Charlotte, we downsized. We're empty nesters. So we sold the big house where we raised the family. We have the two-bedroom condo here in Uptown. Uh, so it is kind of ironic that we have a larger dining room. But, but here's the thing that, that your, your comments remind me of. We're meeting a lot of other people that are in the same boat. And the one common theme is how many of those other couples gave up their dining room table and are grieving over that because that was more than a dining room table. That was the memory of the family. And so I think this idea of a common table or a dining room or whatever, there's something very powerful uh, about that single piece of furniture. Okay. Um, this goes back um, to the awkward moment question, but I, it also addresses um, a larger issue that I think is worth discussing here, um, and that's how um, the food you eat um, might identify privilege. Um, in kindergarten, when you go around and everybody's asked, what's your favorite food? What's your favorite food? Well, my favorite food was always what my mom fixed the night before because she was an excellent cook who cooked everything. And so I said, everybody said, pizza, 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 pizza. And I was looking, I said, scallops. <laughs> and everybody, and even the teacher looked at me like I was crazy and said, you've eaten scallops. And I was like, yes. And I didn't think much about it until fast forward to sixth grade when somebody was talking about having gone out for their birthday or their mom's birthday and eaten a steak and blah, blah. And I said offhandedly, because I was an obnoxious sixth grader, I said, steak. I have steak three times a week. And I was literally slapped in the face almost with their comment back, well, you must be rich. Um, so it's kind of this um, conversation I continually have with myself and I try to have with other people, and I'd like to put to you all, um, how do we enjoy good food? Because we all, and I think we all deserve that. How do we enjoy good food, be good patrons of that idea, but also make sure we're sharing it with the people who could never buy it? Powerful question. Uh-huh. And my daughter, my daughter goes to a private school, and their hot lunch program is brought in. It's catered in, so there's different vendors. My daughter never, I don't ever buy that. Do you know what the catered food is? 
Chick-fil-A, Salsaritas. I'm not knocking their food. I just personally not going to give my daughter that. So what's cool is my daughter has roast pork and rice, or she'll have shrimp scampi or chicken piccata. That's my daughter's lunch. It's all, you're not, I'm not rich. I am not rich. Everyone decides here in this room what to spend their money on. It is my personal opinion. Before I have $100 jeans or an expensive car, my daughter is going to have scallops and steak and shrimp. That's how we do it in our house. My daughter is going to eat well, and she's going to eat healthy, because all those other things don't matter. What matters is our mind, our heart, our spirit, and our body, especially what we eat. So... Invite them them over for dinner. That's what I would do. I would invite people over Mm -hmm. to dinner at my house. Ron Goodwin? Well, it's shameful that the the menus and diets that they have in the school system, and you could demand changes there. Uh, Our after-school program we have, and I guess you might have more members come in at First Baptist Church West. (laughs) This is an experience in dining, this is a chance we get these kids that come from eating the pizza only that we teach them how to dine. I remember the day I had Louisiana gumbo, and everybody interested the kids not going to eat that thing with the crabs in it and all them. But kids will experiment if you sit with them and help them. And they ask for it over and over. When are we going to have gumbo again? But the thing is, you have to demand that the places you're paying the money for, like the school systems, to put in the right kinds of food. Um, just like pizza, uh, the chicken and rice or whatever, the, the, the cost of it is but the same, and maybe even cheaper. But the things that kids eat, I hear what they eat in the school system, it's hard for them to even learn. I don't know how because they eat a lot of the the fast, convenient things. And the private schools are even worse because they get McDonald's one day, they get Pizza Hut another day, they get um, uh, Chick-fil-A another day, and, and never a nutrition kind of meal. Our kids in the after-school program don't even eat canned fruits, and we eat fruits almost every day. But it's easy to get fruits were cheap this year. Cut up fresh fruits and get them, and everybody say the kids not going to eat that, but they will if you teach them. They're not going to eat salad. They will if you do. You know, there's nothing wrong with making a nice tar salad and and chopping up some um, strawberries in it and some little nuts in it and something like that, and then. Make it easy for them to to, to want to eat. Um, And the thing the the lady said about restaurants, see, restaurants used to be personal. You used to see the maitre d' in there. You used to see the owner. You used to see somebody who loved that person who uh, All the restaurants I've had in Charlotte, they saw me that whole time they were there. Now, I had a policy with my other managers, what I used to call the 90-10 policy. 90% of the time, the manager must be in the dining room. You can't take care of your customers if you're going to be in the kitchen. That has to be taken care of before the restaurant opens up. And that's why you don't get it, because there's no personality. And and if any city that lacked personality in restaurants was Charlotte. And what happens to these big chain restaurants you go to, don't look for that. 
because it's not there. They, the, the nice uh, home restaurants where the, the, the and, and, and Greeks are famous because you see them in their restaurants. You know, I don't care what what size restaurant, they're proud of it and they're in there. So you get that personality that you don't get in other restaurants. And and, and 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 restaurants are not happy in Charleston, New Orleans. You saw the owner. You knew everybody. And he might even be a musician. He might come out and play a song. He might do something. And, and, and I'm not going to do it tonight, but in the Charleston house, I used to sing <laughs> songs that I learned because I used to sing on the horse and wagon in Charleston, walk around selling vegetables and fishing thing. So people, he would come, Ron, are you going to sing tonight? Well, if I'm going to keep that customer here and if he's going to stay in that restaurant, he's going to buy a bottle of wine before it's over. And that's that's your money. <laughs> So you don't have that personality anymore. And then when you're going, it's nice to go in the top restaurants, but it's just you miss that. You miss that part with that man is in there. Now, when you talk about accessibility, stuff that folks are doing in Old Town in Rock Hill to make different mm -hmm. kinds of food accessible, that's something that, that I've been really impressed with. Right. There's um, one, one of the things that has happened in our town is the university and the city and some others have uh, gotten together to do an educational garden. Um, and really, I think, to your question, um, it's a really complicated issue, of course, and it's got a lot of different answers. But one of them has got to be that there's a poverty of knowledge, right? And Because um, I know people who are very poor financially that eat well because they know how to grow things and mm -hmm. cook things. But... Um, but a lot of people don't. Most people don't. So um, surely one thing that we can all do is when we're uh, committing to having our family at table every night or however often it can be, we've got to figure out how to get the people around us there um, on our street. There's people in need all over. Um, and it, it might – there's different levels of need, but, um, you know, get your neighbors there. Uh, and that takes commitment and work and time. Um, and, you know, awkwardness. Um, but get people there, and, and that poverty of knowledge can start to be worked on. Maybe the next time when you have something like that, you have it with food, you know, and um, do different things and different kinds of food and different cultural food. And when you have different foods, you, you, you talk a lot. we got time for one or two more comments from the audience, and then we're going to bring Mark Rumsey back. Thank you. Okay. I wanted to ask you, you know, under sort of the, the title of awkward moments mm -hmm. and then mm -hmm. disparity of um, wealth and, and access, I was at um, a Fourth of July event the other day, an evening with friends, and the subject of GMO food came up, genetically engineered food. And um, it was interesting because it was very awkward. There were some people in, in one camp and others in the other camp, and we were trying to make sense of it. And I'm wondering what kind of, how that comes up for you all and what you have to, to say about that. And also, you know, the idea of, of growing your own and maybe doing more organic and how that filters out in the community. I've solved the gardening problem very neatly. Um, I can't grow anything. <laughs> um, but 
to address your question, you know, it's a really complicated, difficult, ever-evolving issue that I think is going to take a real long time to, to, to fully understand and know how to implement and address as any big health and public good issue tends to be. Um, I don't have any words of wisdom on that, but um, I do know that gardening is not the option for me. We're figuring it out in our little community because um, we're just doing it together and um, trying to find sources that we can go in on together, grow things together, and but it's just really hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's going to be hard mm-hmm. for a while. I see something over there. Well, before we close tonight, I have to preach my religion, I guess, which is breakfast. <laughs> Amen. My, my father used to get up early in the morning. He was the first one up. He cooked breakfast, a full breakfast, not muffin and a coffee. And everyone came to the table to eat, and we ate together as a family. I continued the same practice when I had children, and now my son is doing the same thing. Um, we start our day off with what are your plans for the day, um, finding out where, where people's heads are for the day, and sending them out with a spirit of whatever it is I can do this. Mm-hmm. Uh, I hear people rushing off to breakfast, and tonight, even tonight I've heard people talk about these disjointed meals, um, which I think if you start the day with breakfast and your friends and family, even when we used to do, instead of dinner parties, when I married, we did breakfast parties. So the vegans, all the, all the different variety of vegans, and the meat eaters and everybody came, and I told them, wear your pajamas, just go home by noon. Uh, pancakes. 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 Just set up whatever, whatever anybody's dietary needs were. We spread the table. And people came together in the mornings and ate together and then went on their merry way. So I, I'm putting in my pitch for breakfast. Amen. Amen. we got, we got lots of other hands here. Uh, I've got a couple of quick announcements that folks asked me to make, and then I want to bring up Mark Rumsey to, to kind of bring us to a close. And what I'm hoping is that we got people gathered and that folks will keep talking. Wouldn't that be a cool thing? Talk with them. Talk with your neighbors. There's a whole bunch of interesting people in here. Don't go home just talking to people that you know. Talk to somebody new. Charlotte's Myers Park United Methodist Church will host hymns and hot dogs, 5.30 p.m. Sunday, August the 4th, singing your favorite hymns, bring musical instruments to play along, and there's a free hot dog supper. If you're interested in that, it's up here on the podium. And also for folks who are are looking at at some of the the large issues that we've talked about tonight, the Learning Society at Queen's University is bringing Michael Pollan to town. Ah. Michael Pollan, the author of Cooked and the Omnivore's Dilemma, will speak in Dana Auditorium on Queens College campus October 10th, 2013. So mark your calendar for October 10th for Michael Pollan. Mark Rumsey, come and say a word. Thank you so much to all of you. This is just great. We're just tickled. Thank you, Tom. And thank you so much, Tom Hanship, and uh, our great panel for your contributions tonight, and all of you for spending a summer evening here to talk about the gathering power of food.